So in the spirit of Father's Day, I thought I'd open up with a memory um, with my dad. I realize not everybody has good experiences uh, or good memories as children with their dads. I had a, a wonderful dad. Um, he was a fifth grade school teacher for um, near 36 years, which meant we weren't that rich. But we had him every summer, which was really cool. Um, we got to go on camping trips and travel, and he'd drag us to his marathon races. Those I didn't appreciate very much because we were, you know, three hours waiting for him to, to finish. Uh, across the finish line, but um, there's one memory that stands out really above all the rest, and, uh, and he had his quirks, still has them, um, and, uh, but one of the high points for me as a son and with my dad was uh, 1990. At that point, my dad was 54 and I was 23. Don't do the math. <laughs> because I realized, and I hate to admit this, I'm creeping closer to that, the age my dad was when this memory happened, and um, now he's 83, right? So, um, he had this plan for he and I to do a 149-mile leg of the Lewis and Clark Trail. That is down the Missouri River, starting in Fort Benton. It's a little tiny town. You know those towns you, you dream about being a part of, like everybody knows everybody? And not just knows everybody, but everybody's hospitable. So we went into a restaurant, for example, and, and we asked our waitress uh, or server, um, you know, do you know of any good fishing stores? Because we need to buy some fishing um, gear. And she says, yeah, here, here's the address. And she writes the address of a man's house. <laughs> so we go to the house and we knock on the door and he opens up his garage door. The guy makes his own fishing equipment. And uh, so we bought some things and then he just gave us stuff. Said, hey, you got to try this and this. And we told him we're going down the Missouri River. And uh, it's just one of those, those, those towns that, that's just uh, uh, utterly amazing. Anyway, that, I digress. Uh, we got on the river, and um, it was just one of those times where once you leave Fort Benton, um, it's nothing but raw nature and creation. Animal life. There was no f sound of freeways. There was no honking horns. There were no city lights. Uh, it was just me and my dad in a canoe, surrounded by water, surrounded by creation, with food and gear and paddles. And it was just... It was just an amazing time with my, with my father. And, um, but my, the best part, you know, was, uh, was at night we'd roll out our mats and roll out our bags. Um, and there, was, it's not even, there were no camping spaces. We're just on the edge of the Missouri River. And uh, to just look up right beside my dad at the big Montana night sky and talk. And we talked about anything and everything. And uh, to me, that was a, a high point, a rich moment in life that I will take with me to my grave. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful I still have my dad, but that, I can tell you, in all of my years knowing him, um, that was the most intensive father-son time I've ever had, before or after. Now, I don't know if you look back in your memory, um, some of your best, richest moment of life, when you felt most alive, but I'd be willing to guess, without exception, you weren't by yourself. I'd be willing to guess that without exception, you were with someone. And not someone you didn't like, but someone you liked. Someone you enjoyed. Father, mother, son, daughter, good friend. And you can remember it like it was yesterday. Because it was so rich and so wonderful. I believe experiences like that teach us something about how we were made and what life is. And that is that life itself is a relational reality. That is to say, 
Um, fullness of life in the qualitative sense is not experienced as I, in isolation, right? Like, when's the last time you heard somebody say, I had the best time ever on a catamaran off the beach of Maui, eating seafood, watching the sun go down all by myself. <laughs> I've never heard it. I don't think I ever will. Now, does that mean we don't need time for solitude and being by ourselves? No, we do because we need to recharge so that we can come back into community and oftentimes relationships are broken and so you have to pull away, but not permanently. Again, like I said, I want to argue the point that life, the qualitative fullness of life is experienced as a relational reality. The problem is, is that we live in a broken world, a fractured world, where the fabric of relationships constantly change and sometimes not for the good. Which explains why our best moments of life are in relationship and our worst moments in life oftentimes have to do with relationship. Now Jesus is going to teach us in this passage, in his prayer, that life, real full life, is a relational reality. That he has come to reestablish relationship, first vertically and then horizontally. And that's going to come later in the prayer. To restore relationship with, with our Father. So I want you to think of those words, relational reality. That is what life is. That is the fullness of life when um, sin is taken care of. So what I'm going to do now is I want to kind of go back to verse 1 because you want to see the flow for those of you who weren't here just to, to, to read this amazing prayer of Jesus. The first section, as we saw last week, um, talks about the glory of God, the glory of the Father and the Son. And wedged in the middle of this great first part of the prayer on his glory is this statement about eternal life. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, again, just a reminder from last week, this whole prayer is set within the framework of father-son relationship. It's intimate, it's personal, and it's directed to his father. Perfect for Father's Day. I didn't attend that, but it just happened. Maybe. <laughs> Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, we're not to verse 3 yet because I just want to pause on verse 2. And I want you to notice that the word give in various forms is found three times. Related to authority, eternal life, and people. And he's saying in verse 2 that the father has given authority to the son. That's the first give. The second give tells us the son was specifically given that, that authority for a specific purpose of giving eternal life and giving eternal life to a specific group of people that the father has given to the son. All that to say that this is a work of the father. The father orchestrates, he initiates, he ordains, and the son is supposed to carry it out. He's supposed to take this authority and he is supposed to give a group of people. And you're going to find out later on this is a specific group of people it's not universal, it's specific. I'm not going to open that can of worms today, but we will when we get there. A very specific group of people who are sinners, and he's going to give them life. This is a sovereign work of the Father. That's, that's how, it's, how it lays out. So having said that, this, this gift, this gracious gift that the Father ordains that the Son carries out to a specific group of people, we come to the question, 
So what is this eternal life that Jesus came to give? And I want you to try right now to, 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 to jettison all of your notions of eternal life. And I don't, I'm not asking you to forget. I'm just saying, let's just kind of approach this maybe from a slightly new perspective or just with, from a fresh perspective. And if not, that's okay too. So he says this. this he, he, he specifically tells us what eternal life is. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Life is that you know him. That's, that's, that's by very definition what eternal life is. It's a relational reality. Apart from God, there is no eternal life. There is no life. So true life in the fullest qualitative and quantitative sense is a relationship with your father. That's what he says. Life is, real life is a relational reality, a relational reality with God. Now, I want to focus, in terms of verse 3, on two words, and just kind of explain the verse from two words, the word know and the word you, that they may know you. The first part, we just emphasize, what does it mean to know? Something. What does it mean in particular to know God? And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. He's saying eternal life is knowing God. Now, it's unfortunate, and most of you know this, unfortunately, we can't seem to break out of it. That when we think of the word knowledge, we think of information. Like, I know what the weather is today. I know a good recipe for chicken Alfredo. I know what the stock market is doing right now. That's informational knowledge. Or there's functional knowledge, like I know how to change a tire. Uh, I know how to tie a pressic knot. Uh, I know how to get to Vacaville, functional knowledge. And we think of knowing God as attaining information about him. And information is important. I mean, this book that we have, this thing called the Bible, is information, but it's a very personal information. If you think about it, I mean, the, the two halves of the Bible, or you might call it the first two-thirds and the last third, they're called the New Covenant and Old Covenant. I mean, covenant is a relational Reality, a relationship, marriage covenant. So the whole thing, the whole Bible is, is couched in this covenantal um, framework which tells us it's intensely personal. It's relational to the core. And a failure to miss that is a failure to miss the intent of it. It is supposed to reveal God to us so that we can actually know him personally, not just by way of information. And yet, we spend a lot of time gathering information and sometimes we equate that to spirituality. Now, we need to know the information because that's a starting point. But if that information about God that's laid out for us in the Scripture, and the Gospel in particular, does not lead to love, humility, joy, peace, glad obedience, then I'd be willing to argue you simply know about God. You don't really know him yet. And maybe the knowledge you have is simply satiating your sense of pride because knowledge puffs up, but a relational knowledge humbles. He's talking about something profound here. You know, I have known credible stories of scholars of the New Testament who gather together and the, the baseline that allows you to go to this really high caliber meeting is you have to have certain books of the New Testament memorized in Greek. 
And when they realized there were too many people who had this knowledge of the Bible, verbatim knowledge, memorization of the Bible in Greek, they had to up the, the standard. Thank you. And so they required not only uh, rote memory knowledge of the Bible in Greek, that is the New Testament in Greek, but also in the Greek texts of the Bible, there's this, all this sub-information called an apparatus that gives you all the detailed um, mappings of where different readings were and where the papyrus is found and the codex and so forth and all that stuff. So the, the next standard was you have to have that memorized too, and there are people who actually know that stuff. That is meticulous, granular knowledge of the Bible, and yet some of those scholars don't know God. All that to say is that we can't equate simple knowledge with relationship. It's a piece of it, but it's not relationship at its core. To know is to know something deep, is to set your heart and will in motion. And that's what Jesus is talking about, a very intimate, powerful knowledge. Or if I could draw a picture. I want you to just imagine for a second that someone's taking you on, a, on, a, on a, um, a tour of your soul. Like you're going from the outside doors to the center. All right? Just imagine. It's just a hallway, and you're going to pass some rooms, and then you're going to get to the center of your soul. And the person takes you on a tour and says, this is the first room. We call this the emotion room, right? And you look into the window, into the emotion room, and there's all kinds of colors. They're bright, and some are pink, and some are green. Some are dark, like there's anger over there, and there's joy over there, and there's jealousy there, and it's full spectrum in there. And it's like, okay, we're going to go to the next room. And you pass that emotion room, and you go to the cognition room. And there's all these processors and, and uh, equations, and this is where we do our thinking. This is where we process information, is this room. And you pass by that room, and you go to the next room, and it's like, now this is where all the memories are stored in the soul. And you finally get to the end of the hallway and there's this thing called the core. And he opens the door and, and all you can see is energy. And the person says, this is the, this is, this is, this is the core of the soul or what the Hebrews call the lave, the heart. Everything flows from here. This energizes cognition, emotions, and the will. That core is where you know God. That's where the Spirit of God penetrates into to the inner recesses, the spring of your being, and he turns on the lights so that you can see God at a very fundamental, essential level, at the center of your soul. And it changes you. It's called the new birth. It's called being born again comes in a new life at the very center. It's not just a cognitive thing. It, it, it is, but it's the core, the seat, they call it, of one's very being. They hear the gospel and the Spirit of God comes in and awakens the core to a new reality. And it sets a, a life in motion that you know him. Not just know about him, but you know him in your spirit, in your soul of souls, in the inner sanctum of your being. Maybe it's a little bit like I'm spending a little more time on this because, we, again, we think of know as cognition only um, rather than knowing God in the heart. Cognition is just a tool we use to know and understand God, right? Maybe it's a little bit like 
what a guy feels like or what we mean by love at first sight. The girl walks into the room and the guy instantly sees her and something happens. And he didn't even have to cognate it. He just saw something beautiful. And then he watches, now he begins to think and love at first sight, you know what it does? It sets things in motion. Next thing you know, he's trying to get near her, trying to sit by her at the table. He's thinking about her when she's not around. And he'll spend every waking minute trying to figure out everything about her, memorizing the details of her face, wanting to know everything about her life. When God brings a new heart into your soul, you see him for the first time and you're like, that's the treasure. That's the treasure. And it's harder to define than it is to describe what that is. Even my little tour to the center of the soul is littered with approximations. But you can see the effects of it. You can see the effects of this new life in terms of joy and worship and humility and a desire to obey and understand and know God. I mean, it caused the men of the Old Testament who had a smaller glimpse of who God was. They were pre-Jesus. But they still were so utterly amazed and it just, they burst forth in poetry and singing. Where did that come from? Because they knew God deep here. It wasn't just a, an informational thing. It was a, it was a deep-seated thing. So you have these statements and this, these are just like a, a, a tiny sample of you know whom have I in heaven but you and on the earth there's nothing I desire besides you it's, it, this is a heart that has found something so immensely priceless that nothing compares to it the light went on in here or your steadfast love O Lord it's, it's better than life better than living is knowing you it's kind of an oxymoron or irony, I suppose, to, to your love is better than life, but if you don't have life, how can you enjoy love? Or my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. This is a spontaneous combustion of, of joy that comes out in singing. To know God in here is to know life. To know your Father is to know what it means to truly live. And church... That's who we're supposed to be. And I hope that's who you are, alive. But it's also something that we nurture, right? If God has begun the awakening in your life and he brought you to life and you know, and some of you in here, maybe many, I hope most, if not all, like I do know him. But sometimes if you don't nurture a relationship, it can start to grow cold, right? Any relationship, including your relationship with your father. I mean, if, if the essence of life, and, and the life, by the way, doesn't start in the future. It starts now. The verse that I skipped over is like, Jesus said, I came to give life abundantly. That's why. This, it's the qualitative abundance of life, but also it's, it's quantitative in the sense that it's eternal. Once it starts, it never ends, and it expands and expands, especially as we draw towards the new creation, so that we begin to understand the height and the depth of this relationship that we have with God our Father. It's a, it's a powerful thing, but it needs to be nurtured. Are you nurturing your relationship with your Father? Is there a sense of passion, desire, joy, longing, or have you neglected it? I love the words of uh, James Packer 
classic work that probably should be read every year, Knowing God. I read it in college, and I just love the book. And certain parts of it just stick out. But he writes on this, and he just says, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? And he says, the rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God, matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. And he hit this so much on the head, and I missed it the first time I read it. I have come to understand how important prayerful meditation is on Scripture and what it does to the heart. To slow down and allow the Scripture to permeate that inner core of your heart, where it begins to warm and burn. That's prayerful meditation on the gospel itself, on the scripture. So that's the no part that they, you, they, you church, may know you. Now let's switch to the second word. That's just knowing you. The second part is like, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's not just a God that leads to, or a relationship with a God that, that constitutes eternal life. Um, it's not a nameless higher power that you have a relationship that consists of or gives you eternal life. We use that language sometimes in secular environments so as people, that people have the freedom of conscience to believe what they want to believe. Higher power. For the Christian, there's only one higher power, and he has a name. Uh, he's personal. He talks. He speaks. He creates. He sings. He loves. He enjoys. He embraces. He's the father of a family. I mean, that's, those are pretty definitive characteristics of, 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 of God. And Jesus says, listen... What constitutes eternal life is not just knowing, but knowing the right thing or the not, knowing the right person. It's knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ. The only true God. Now, there, that, that is packed. The only means there's one. There's not more than one. True mean there's, means there's a true, and by implication, there's also a false. The only, that is one, monotheism, true God. That's what eternal life is, to know the one true as opposed to false God. And, now this should flip your lid a little bit, and I'm not trying to nerd out, okay? Because you notice that the next part, Jesus makes himself co-equivalent with the Father, that you may know the one true God and, by implication, know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know God and to know, or excuse me, to know the Father and to know the Son constitutes eternal life. He puts himself like as, as a coordinate there. Suggesting that Christ is, in fact, divine and of course, it becomes explicit in verse 5. So here you have this acknowledgement that there is only one God, that is only true God, and yet Jesus makes himself part of it. And if you add chapter 16 into it, where Jesus teaches on the giving of the Spirit, you have the makings and the foundations of what the Christians have called the triune or the trinity. And like I said, I'm not nerding out, because what I want to show you is that I told you at the beginning that eternal life is by very nature relational reality. 
God himself is the one God who has eternally existed in an interrelational love between the three. Eternal life, life is a communal reality. And the Father through the Son sending the Spirit is making us a part of that life. That's amazing! That's deep, but, you know, go home and think about it for a while. It's just, like I said, it just bears the point. To know you, the one true God, and to get it to what I think Jesus is really saying, because you have to understand what he says here in light of the rest of the Gospel of John, of course. And I think you could put it this way, paraphrase it this way, is that eternal life is, is knowing the one true God through knowing Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Because Jesus is God's definitive, full, and final message of his own self. He is the word made flesh. He is the word of God come to us in the most tangible, most relatable, most understandable way possible that is in human flesh. Um, and, and all the way through the Gospel of John, you find Jesus saying things like this. Well, my teaching isn't for me. It doesn't originate from me. I'm just saying the things that the Father has given to me. So what I'm teaching is the Father's teaching. Or you'd say the miracles and the signs and the wonders that I'm doing, these, these aren't my works. They're his works that he gave me to do. So these works are the Father's works, which would include the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is, this is what I'm supposed to do, but my death that cleanses you from sin and my resurrection that gives you life, these are his works. These are my Father's works. So that he could say in John 14, verse 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like, I fully disclose who he is to the world. You want to know the Father? Come to know me. That's how it works, right? Which is why I selected Philippians 3. Paul understood this. He goes, you know, I count all things lost in view of or because of the surpassing value or worth of knowing Jesus. To know Jesus in your inner soul through the gospel is to know and have a relationship with the Father and is to know and experience eternal life. It's not just knowledge of God, it's knowledge of the right and true God who's revealed in Jesus Christ, and that constitutes, church, eternal life. Do you have it? Are you experiencing it? Have you neglected it? Are you nurturing it? I have been in some dead churches, and probably the most deadest one, the most deadest, the deadest one, <laughs> all my grammar teachers out there are going to crucify me if I get things wrong. Jackie, yeah. <laughs> Leslie. Uh, where was I? Yes, deadest church. <laughs> Just talking to myself, sorry. So, we're, last month, we're in Israel, and the people who are with me, I, I think, can resonate with this. We, we go to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. It's in Jerusalem. Uh, also called the Church of the Resurrection by the Orthodox. Um, Christians. I like the second name of the church because, you know, you have the Orthodox and the Armenians and the Roman Catholics, and they all kind of have their own pieces of the pie, and they call it different things. Anyway, beside the point, we go into this Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and the reason we go there is because it is the most likely place historically and archaeologically where Jesus died on a cross, where he was buried, and where he rose again. So they built a church over this, the complex over this ancient Golgotha. I mean, there's outcroppings of rocks underneath this church. So we go there, and it smells like incense and body odor. 
because there's quite literally thousands and millions of people that go through there. And not everybody has the same, you know, uh, cultural appreciation for deodorant that we do. <laughs> so immediately it's, it's, it just stinks. And it is crowded with people. At one point we're in a traffic jam of people. My wife is 5'3", I'm 6'3", so I can actually see over the crowd, but she's like walled in, like, like giants all around her, and everybody's body to body, and I oh, just couldn't wait to get out of there, right? It's ornate, it's gaudy, um, but the thing that caught my attention and my 13-year-old boy's attention first off is we walked by this slab of stone, I think it's called the Stone of Anointing, where they believe Jesus' body was taken down and anointed for death by Joseph of Arimathea. And as we passed by, there was clusters of people around this stone, and they were weeping over the stone. Some were kissing the stone. Others were wiping cloth on the stone as if somehow this stone like got them closer to the Lord. And maybe this fabric that has touched the stone will give them some special blessing. And I didn't actually ask my son if I could say this, so I'm, I'm going to have to beg forgiveness later. But I, um, he said, Dad, I, I, don't, I don't think Jesus would like this, something like that. I got this, to his understanding of the gospel and church and what it means to be a Christian, that is not it. Touching, kissing a stone and thinking it has magical powers to get you closer to God. And I'm like, yes. My boy understands that. 13 years of age, this is not, because what we're talking about there is really, it's a form of paganism in Christian disguise of tradition. Listen, God doesn't give you life through a stone, through an old church cathedral. Now, all those things are beautiful. They have historical significance. But at the end of the day, I just, and my wife later said, can you imagine if this place had an awakening and there was life and there was singing and the gospel was being preached? It's like, it'd be amazing. But what it was, it's a museum. It felt dead and it was dead. I never want to be a church like that. I don't want to be a Christian like that. God has offered us right here, right now, eternal life that we experience right here, right now, that will culminate later on. And you don't have to go to Jerusalem to find it. It's right here. It's having a personal, vibrant relationship with God through Jesus Christ who gave his life for you and rose for you and gave his spirit so that that inner core room could be opened up. Church, we have to continue to run towards that and not lose uh, uh, a sight of the most important thing in all of life. This is going to sound like a um, heresy. The most important thing in life, or should I say the f uh, first priority of life, is not evangelism. You can't tell people about a Jesus that you don't know. You have to know him first. If you don't know him first, then when people hear you talk about Jesus with a kind of a dead, monotone, not exciting way, it's like trying to sell, you know, Rogaine to, from a, or trying to buy Rogaine from a bald man. It just doesn't work. I should have picked a different illustration. No, you'll be alive. You'll be alive in your relationship, your knowledge of God, and nurture that so that people, when they sense you talking about Jesus, they're like, he really believes this. And if not, repent. 
and ask the Lord to do new work in your heart. That's the kind of person I am longing to be. I hope you're longing to be. That's the kind of church we want to be, not dead, but alive, where Christ is known and where he is sung about, prayed to, and revealed. Amen. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for offering eternal life to people who are broken. I pray for hearts here who might not know you yet, and they're just figuring that out. I just pray for a gracious blessing of your spirit opening that door of their inner core being to you. And for those of us who have neglected our relationship with you, and it is cooled, I just pray for a fresh... um, a fresh revelation of Jesus to our hearts through your word and through your spirit. Thank you for being here with this church family. Father, we adore you for being our father, for being so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen.